Conversations podcast. All right. Um, I'm just going to reposition my seating for the next few questions now. Um, Michael, let's have a look at this one. Uh, this one comes from a Thai, Thai interpreter or as an interpreting candidate uh, from Victoria. I've recently completed a NATI endorsed qualification, Advanced Diploma Interpreting, with the goal to become a professional who's ready to work in the TNI industry, as well as to become eligible to sit for the NATI Accreditation Certified Interpreter Test. However, with a very limited test schedule and availability, I have to wait until October 2023 to sit for the test. That is a very long wait. And unfortunately, I was also rejected by NATI certification team to apply for recognized interpreter. I believe NATI has done everything it can to make sure we've got a good system to produce professionals in the TNI industry. But this is something you need to review. Practicing interpreters who have completed NATI endorsed qualification should be recognized by NATI while waiting for the certification test. Could you please take this with a careful consideration to work collaboratively with the institutes who offer NATI endorsement courses so you can ensure the tests are offered at a reasonable time? So I guess, you know, in conjunction with when they finish their courses. Second question, could you please help explain or guide us who has no luck on the test booking to be eligible for RPI, are you suggesting we comments work as a non-accredited interpreter, get some work experience for at least three months before we can apply for it? If NATI cannot increase the capacity or offer the test more frequently, would you consider making us who have completed the endorsed qualification eligible to apply for recognized practicing interpreter whilst we are waiting to sit the test? This will allow us to commence work and be recognized in the industry as a professional interpreter. Please kindly consider our request. We really appreciate your attention and support during this journey. Uh, Michael, sorry for that extremely long question, but I thought that I had to read all that out. Um, it made very good sense. Uh, what do you say to this? First of all, can you work with um, uh, your institutions, your NATI indoors institutions to see if you can align the tests uh, to when they are graduating their students. So whether it be, I guess, um, with the mid-semester or mid-year graduation or the end-of-year graduation. Because, uh, yes, you know, people might be finishing their course in June and then their test is available next February, March, in this case, October 2023. Um, and the second question is, until they are able to sit the test, would you consider giving them recognised practising interpreter so they can at least start gaining some experience out there. Awesome. Um, so the the first point, the uh, first point I would make is uh, recognised practising um, with NATI. We offer to languages that we don't test in, or where a test's not available for a year. So our standard rule is, uh, if it was in this case Thai that within 12 months, if there wasn't a test, we would absolutely offer recognised practising. Um, we are thinking about how we can use recognised practising um, more flexibly uh, to give uh, potential candidates the opportunity to get some work experience. 
but that's a, an ongoing discussion that we need to have with stakeholders and institutions. So the current standing is if a test is not available for a year, absolutely we would offer recognised practising. Where that doesn't um, translate into this question from Thai is because the Thai CI test is not yet available and it won't be until October 2023 because it's just not been developed yet. But we have the alternative for Thai, which is the certified provisional test, uh, and I definitely know that our Melbourne office has worked with several candidates to offer Thai CI test in the interim and then upon completion of that test to then when uh, the CI test is available to only pay the difference in the test prices to be able to do the higher level qualification. So, uh, yeah, very specifically for Thai, recognised practising, there is CPI tests available and our preference would be to do a proper credential that has been tested rather than recognised practising, which is only based on um, educational attainment. Um, and then to, to flesh that uh, comment out a little bit more, there's over 200 languages spoken in Australia. Uh, we're committed to getting as many as we can tested, uh, and but it takes time. And like any business, I guess, we have to, to look at what resources are available and what demand there is. So uh, I it was like a long time away, but um, we're, we have to work through all the languages we've got, uh, and which sort of ties in with the other question about tying it in with uh, the semester end dates for education institutions. If we tied it in completely with the ends of semesters, we would have 50 languages tested in two weeks in July and then nothing for four or five months. So we only have 48-odd test weeks a year that we can effectively use. We can usually get about three languages tested per week because there's a training day for role players uh, and test invigilators the day before a test and then the day of the test itself, uh, and we're doing that nationally. So we try and spread tests out as best as we can to meet um, the demand frequency but also just to accommodate everyone at the same time. So it's not perfect, we appreciate, but we're working on some other technologies as well uh, to, to allow more remote testing, more video interpreting. We're doing some because of COVID. We're trying to really improve that um, capability. Uh, so where we have capacity potentially in Western Australia, for example, we might be able to run a higher demand language more frequently via video to allow then the Melbourne test venue to look after other languages and we can do more Arabic or Turkish or Spanish tests that are in higher demand. So we've done that a little bit in the last six to 12 months, uh, definitely working with institutions to so uh, add test sessions that aren't already in the calendar. So we've got our test calendar out until 2023, hence why the TIE CI can see it. Um, but we've added at least four test sessions in conjunction with uh, university in the last six months to meet um, the very specific demands where we have been able to of large cohorts of candidates have come through. So if we can guarantee that we'll get four or five candidates and it's absolutely worth us doing what we can to put an out-of-session test session in to, to accommodate that demand. Uh, very good because, you know, we do need to recognise definitely that uh, sometimes, at the very least, if, you, if you're finishing your course mid-year, um, you know, you've got six, seven months to then wait 
or potentially sitting your test in either February or March, let's say. Um, so it can be quite a daunting experience for the candidates to go through that stressful time uh, and, and then not be, maybe not having access to as much practice uh, opportunities as they would have had during uh, the time that they were students in their institutions. Um, so, you know, uh, it's, it's good to know that uh, you do know that this is happening and uh, with the help of, uh, I guess, remote uh, testing and, and to be able to use uh, the resources across uh, the nation, you know. I, I really like that idea of Western Australia helping Victoria out and vice versa. Um, I, I think there's a lot to be said about that. So well done and we look forward to hopefully one day uh, to be able to sit your test as soon as uh, you finish your um, your course because um, I understand that, uh, you know, a few years ago, until a few years ago, the institutions would test uh, the students themselves um, and then they would, uh, NATI would then give them the accreditation. Um, uh, but uh, I guess since 2018, since the whole system changed, that uh, that responsibility, I guess, uh, was taken away from institutions and was put solely on NATI. Um, and uh, you have been working on building the numbers, building the test, building uh, your team. Um, and like you say, we're in 2021, 2018. It's, it's, a, it's a little baby, isn't it? Um, and, you know. It is only, yeah, considering the 40-plus year of, of NATI history, it is, it is a very recent development. Uh, and very specifically to that point of the tests all being done by NADI. Uh, you know, and we will continue to do what we can to improve accessibility um, to uh, candidates. But that decision was a very key part of the NADI test paper that was released in 2012, which was if there is a central body responsible for the testing, it gets rid of any perceived or real um, discrepancy in individual institutions testing themselves. So that's why that it was brought into uh, NADI itself rather than allowing institutions to continue doing it, just to ensure that, that it was a one standard applied equally regardless of where the training was conducted. Um, what if you were, this is now me asking you the question, uh, what if you were to put supervisors and vigilators within institutions? Because then they would set the tests up. Um, they would have. Uh, the, they they might even wear the cost of having the role players. Um, so they would set it up in ideal uh, NATI standards, and then you would only have to send maybe two, three supervisors, invigilators to supervise the test to make sure of their integrity. Yes. Yes, you'd never say never, um, but. There is a lot of hurdles for it to, to jump over before we would consider that appropriate because in addition to test supervisors ensuring that the test was run appropriately, it's the availability of test materials mm. that have been trained to an appropriate standard uh, and then the equipment being of a reliable specification and consistent quality. So there is a couple of other factors involved in that. Uh, again, never say never, um, but it's certainly not something that we've considered at the moment. Uh, now, I have a, a few comments, actually, maybe not directly questions, but comments. Um, and I know that uh, both of the, the owners of these comments uh, are interpreter candidates. Okay, so they are either studying or they've finished their studies, they're about to sit the test or they have. 
Now, this is about some of their observations um, about what, what they have seen with practicing interpreters out there. And I guess they are now more verbal because after completing their studies, they now know what's expected from an interpreter. And, you know, they could have been interpreting for their family members for years, uh, but now they've actually seen what an interpreter is supposed to do and not supposed to do uh, in, during their studies in preparation for the NATI test. Um, they've made some of these comments, so uh, let's see let's see how we can address them. I'm not an interpreter yet. I have family members who are on workers' compensation and often require an interpreter. Problem is the interpreter does not know terminology for workers' compensation. Often my family members become frustrated when dealing with interpreters. I know this is not recommended, but there is really no other option, so I have to be an interpreter for them. The load speaker becomes frustrated. This isn't a one-off thing either. It's everywhere when interpreters are used on the phone with insurance companies or WIRO. Um, in person with rehab, it's everywhere when interpreter used on the phone or face-to-face. -face. I have seen this happen over 99% of the time. Just the other day, a family member called WIRO with an interpreter. They became frustrated and the interpreter was difficult. I called back two days later and funny enough stumbled on the same person who the family member spoke to and she told me that even though she did not speak the language, she could feel that the interpreting was going nowhere. The interpreter was yelling and refusing to interpret. This is not acceptable and needs to be fixed ASAP. Thanks. Now, just before I get your comments on that, I have another very similar comment uh, from a, another um, interpreting candidate. After a person passes their NATI test, they are not really required to sit any other test unless they want a higher accreditation. They must show PD in their language, but that is pretty much it. I have spent years observing interpreters for various family members. I have seen interpreters emit large chunks of information, not interpreting everything or interpreting in the third person. Just last week, I was in an appointment with an interpreter and shocked horror, the interpreter was interpreting in the third person. Guaranteed, if you tested these interpreters today, they would fail their exam. If I'm not present at these important appointments for family members, who do, how do I know if the, if the interpreter is doing their job properly? There seems to be a double standard for interpreters and those who want to be interpreters. It looks like it's okay if you have passed the NATI exam. Um, so, you know, there's some issues there with uh, potentially some interpreters uh, that are out there, uh, maybe not at the standard that NATI is testing current candidates. Um, you know, there's a little bit of, I guess, uh, an observation or a frustration that uh, the candidates have to go through a very uh, rigorous and uh, a difficult test process, uh, whereas you might have interpreters out there that have received their accreditation from years ago. Um, and as we know, all day, yes, they transitioned, but they had to do a Shushitad workshop and uh, that was pretty much it, I believe. Um, what do you think about these where you have these interpreter candidates that uh, are being tested at a very high level? And, and it's, it's great that they are being tested at that level, you know, but then you also might have interpreters out there. Um, maybe that aren't even at the level that... Uh, the, the current candidates are being tested at. How do, how do you deal with that? 
There, there's probably a there's a there's a lot in these couple of statements, I guess. Uh, so the first one is the the interpreters being used. We don't know whether they were Nadi certified. So, but we'll assume they are for the purpose of the question. The, um, these these both of these candidates uh, are the Greek language. So let's assume that uh, Greek being an established language, and hopefully these are <laughs> certified interpreters and not unaccredited ones. Yep. Okay, so assuming that they're Nadi certified, there's there's a couple of mechanisms in the first instance that um, I make the general comment that Nadi is not a direct employer of interpreters for the purposes of interpreting. Uh, and and we don't offer services. So there is a, a relationship between the interpreter that's working and the employer, in this case potentially a hospital or a language service provider that's providing the service on behalf of the hospital. Uh, in the first instance, there is the ability for, um, for a consumer that is receiving those services to state their disappointment with the quality provided, no different than in any other interaction with a business that we have. Uh, and hopefully pull me up on it if I haven't been able to tie all the parts together, I'll, I'll try. Mm. So that's the first part. There is, um, there is a direct relationship with the person providing the service and an employer, in this case, either a hospital or language service provider with the intention from us, I guess, as well as um, consumers that if complaints were received about an employee or a language service provider not providing an adequate service, that they would, by virtue of their underperformance, not be used again and lose work and then other people wouldn't employ them. That's, that's sort of part one. Part two of that is NADI has a complaints mechanism where if, if there is an... Um, an interpreter or a translator that is certified by us uh, that hasn't met the standards of the industry. Um, there's a code of conduct which Ozit named Nati Chair, uh, which has items in it like um, professional conduct, uh, ensuring that they reflect the, the profession in a professional and honourable way, I guess, and, and behave accordingly. Uh, you know, the yelling and refusing to interpret is clearly against the professional conduct part of the Code of Ethics. Um, there is a requirement for uh, practitioners to um, ensure competence, so only take competence which they're in, um, competent and able to deliver, which in the case of um, WIRO, which is, I believe, I could be wrong, the Workers' Compensation Independent Review Office, that's right, in New South Wales. Yeah. In New South Wales. So if in that scenario the interpreter didn't have the skills to do that job, they shouldn't have been doing it as part of the Code of Ethics. Uh, you know, and accuracy and interpreting mode, they're all parts of the Code of Conduct. So the initial stage is as a consumer, if you're receiving poor service, bring it up with the person bring, um, providing the poor service and whether that's the management of the employee in that scenario uh, of the practitioner in that scenario or the, the health board or there is a, a direct mechanism there. And in addition to that, then NATI has the ability to question certified practitioners around issues such as this as well. We're not the first port of call because we don't have investigative powers. We can't go and force 
um, force information from people or um, get testimonials and stuff. But in egregious cases where the um, where a practitioner has done something that has caused you know, a criminal offence or the like, where we received a police report about a practitioner, for example, where they've done something um, against the code of conduct, quite you know, fr- acted fraudulently or acted unethically to the point where it's caused damage, then that would be a case for revocation of certification. Mm. I would comment that though revoking someone's certification also denies them a livelihood. So we're looking at a reasonably high bar of um, misconduct. It has to be serious misconduct for us to consider um, the revocation of a certification. However, that's, that's very extreme, I guess. You know, it could be like confidentiality is broken to the point that uh, it might have uh, affected someone else's health or, or life or freedom. Um, you know, it could be the fact that maybe uh, competence, I mean, you can't really, you don't know enough about this topic, so we're going to revoke your license. Uh, but, you know, well, you should do more PD on this and uh, you should, you should. Be more competent on this and, and don't take work that's beyond your competence. Um, so I do definitely understand that uh, the bar's got to be very, very high when it comes to revoking someone's license. Um, and within regards to, I guess, putting in a complaint, it, it, it needs to be done. If, if you have witnessed something like this, and, and I think that uh, now that these interpreting candidates, they know what an interpreter is supposed to do and not supposed to do, they can really see the difference now between a good or a bad interpreter, maybe, uh, you know, before they completed their courses, they probably still had a good idea, but, you know, they weren't able to see black from white so clearly. Um, so uh, they, they should definitely take it up with uh, the service provider and, and put in that complaint because, you know, if, if the service provider doesn't know, how are they supposed to then uh, say to the language uh, agency, let's say, you know, uh, there's been a complaint about this person. Please make sure that, that this person is either put through education training or, you know, or, or worst case scenario, we don't want this. We don't want to be working with this interpreter again. Um, and then, you know, you're saying that potentially they might lose work. Other people don't use them, and so on, uh, which is which isn't great. You know, this is people's livelihood. Ideally, you want them to re-educate, retrain, and, and hopefully get to a level where they can give competent interpreting. Um, but uh, yeah, I guess the, the, the voices need to be heard. And uh, like you said, you don't have investigative powers. Uh, you don't have the authority uh, to, I guess, go in there and tell people off. You know, we always say that uh, interpreters have to have a self-moral uh, awareness to constantly self-evaluate. Um, but there are a lot of uh, family members out there. There are a lot of service providers out there. There are even non-English speakers out there that speak English well, but they prefer to use interpreting services uh, because you know it's it's, it's high-risk situations, um, and and they're always being evaluated. So potentially you could have a non-English speaker complain saying, "Well, I actually said this, but it was interpreted as this." You know, the interpreter needs to understand that they are constantly being watched by the non-English speaker and the service provider, and they can't just uh, really nearly go in and uh, do a mediocre job. You've got to always be at a very high standard because, uh, you know, any one of these people, uh, plus you've got family members who are interpreter candidates, 
you know, they could always be uh, under the watch of people who, who, who could, I guess, um, you know, see what they're doing right or wrong. I think the, so the flow on, apart from the direct relationship with the employer uh, and our direct complaints procedure, the secondary part for us is really the recertification process. And it might not seem like a direct um, solve to this issue, but the way that we see it working is in the old accreditation system uh, pre-2018, there was practitioners that were given accreditation for life. Mm. And that really showed some there's some obvious issues with that where um, they could lose currency of language or they could not keep up with current terminology or work practice requirements. Um, so the introduction of the certification system and recertification is designed to help address that. Uh, and when we look at the direct relationship with the employer and practitioner, if they are doing a poor job and getting complaints against them, it should lend itself to them not being able to get enough work practice to recertify their credential and eventually drop out of the system or they're not doing enough professional development um, and then drop out of the system as well. So although it's not a, it's an indirect way of, of trying to not control but improve the industry as a whole so that poor practitioners do drop out because they're not getting work or not doing PD, uh, and allowing the you know, experienced and keen and well-educated new practitioners to come up and get those assignments and continue on in the system. So I appreciate it's not a, a direct solve for an immediate problem in a hospital environment, and that's you know, distressing to hear examples like that because I think it, it paints the whole industry poorly. Um, but there are those mechanisms in place. They're not immediate, they're not direct, but they are designed to, over time, weed out some of those poorer practitioners from the, um, from the industry. And even though we commented before about serious misconduct being one of the reasons for a revocation, potentially, if we were to receive a dozen complaints from language service providers or hospitals that employ practitioners over a three-year recertification um, cycle, you would have to say as an organisation for us that a dozen complaints from multiple employers added together becomes enough to say that we don't want you around anymore. Um, and I'm not, you know, I can't say that on the record that's exactly what would happen because every case is different, every bit of information is different, there's frivolous complaints and vexatious complaints but we take it seriously and we take people's livelihood seriously as well. So the, the burden of proof has to be high. But if the complaints are coming through, we, we would have to absolutely consider them. Right, very good to know. All Graduates Conversations Podcast.